Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles again this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Our text this morning will be three short verses, verses 3 to 5, but we will read verses 1 to 5 this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit, or a messenger message, or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me this morning as we pray before we walk our way through this text this morning. Father in heaven, again we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher, that he would again illuminate the truths of your word to us. We know that nothing of value will be done outside of his instructing in our hearts, and so I pray that you will prepare our hearts to hear your word and that you would speak to us through it. We pray again this morning that we will be better equipped to go out praising our God for his greatness and his so great salvation, I pray in your name, amen. Well, we began chapter two last week and we were really starting into a new section. We said that the first section in chapter 1 was really uh, comforting them and, 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 and giving thanks for them and their afflictions. But now he's going to give them comfort and really correction as to their understanding of events to come. In other words, what's going to happen in the future? And so he wants to comfort them. And we saw last week, really, verses 1 and 2, we, we could really just title verses 1 and 2, calm down, <laughs> calm down. Because he really says to them, listen, you've been getting some false teaching here. You've been getting, you thought you got a letter from us, maybe a message from the Spirit, or a, 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 either from a Spirit or a message or a letter from us. And we saw at the end of the book that Paul signs this and says, actually, this is a distinguishing mark of my books. Don't, don't think that you're going to get contradictory, contradictory teaching from me. Wow, that's a big word. Contradictory teaching from me. And, and you guys have to realize I'm consistent in what I teach. And so he says, in regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, Jesus Christ is coming back again, but there's going to be several events that take place in that coming. But he said specifically as to our gathering together with him. In other words, 
to that referring again to that same language we saw in back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he was speaking of the gathering of the church to himself as Christ meets them in the air and takes them back to heaven. And he says specifically to that, you guys have been taught about that. You've also been taught about the day of the Lord and you were taught that you would not go through the day of the Lord. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4, we were told this, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. In other words, you're not going to go through the day of the Lord. Verse 9, for God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation. You're not going to be in the day of the Lord. And so having received this letter, they are shaken. They are, they are disturbed. We could say, he says, you've shaken your composure. In other words, you've lost your mind. In other words, you have, you have strayed from the teaching I gave you, and now you have accepted this teaching, and now your mind is, is all emotional, and you're bouncing back and forth. You're disturbed and agitated. And Paul says, don't be quickly shaken. Don't quickly move from what I taught you. Don't quickly take away because you heard something new and reject what I have taught you. And so we know that the Thessalonians are worked up because they think they're what? In the day of the Lord. They are been, they're under persecution. Things are difficult for them. And it's easy for them to believe that if they really received a message from God that actually they're in the day of the Lord. And they're agitated because they have already had the expectation that they wouldn't be in the day of the Lord. And in fact, they had been taught that they would be removed from the world, that they would no longer be here. And so they're, they're agitated and upset. Well, Paul now is going to say, after saying basically, calm down, He's going to start to explain why they can be calm. He's going to give them reasons. He's going to start to explain how they know that they're not in the day of the Lord. He's now going to explain it to them. And really in this text, we're going to see two events that are taking place. Two events. The apostasy must, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. In other words, there are two events that mark the day of the Lord. And these must be present in order for you to be in the day of the Lord. And so this morning we're going to look at those two events. But first of all, we have to do some exegesis here. And we have to look at some language here to figure out, because I'm going to say this to you, and I want you to look at your text, and I want you to see what I'm saying different than what you're reading in your Bible. I am saying that there are, he is saying that the day of the Lord cannot be present because there are two events that, that will mark that the day of the Lord is present. There are two events. Do you notice a difference in your Bible? Your Bibles translate this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And so we're going to look at that and we're going to have to do some exegesis and we're going to look at two phrases here or two ideas. First of all, it will not come. We will look at that phrase and then we will look at the little word first. 
And then we will look at the apostasy and the antichrist that are, that are mentioned here. So first of all, he begins this section, first of all, just simply saying, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you about the day of the Lord. Let no one deceive you about the, the fact that the rapture has taken, that you've missed the rapture. I want to put you on guard against deception. Anyone who's trying to deceive you that you are in the day of the Lord, th this word deceive here is, is a strong word. It, it means to thoroughly delude, to thoroughly deceive. And, and the idea is, don't let anyone deceive you. In other words, there are those who are teaching, there are those who are willfully dishonest, and they are trying to deceive you. And Paul knows that they will be persistent in that error, and they will be persistent in trying to de deceive. And they will try to keep pushing that view. Hence he warns of that deception in any way, in any manner in which they will bring it apart. And he already gave us three ways in which they had tried to deceive. They said, well, I, I, the Spirit told me, right, of a message. Oh, here's a letter from Paul. And he says, now, in any way, don't be deceived. One writer says he's aware how readily many are attracted to the new and the novel. And it's amazing how gullible some believers can be when a new prophetic, a new prophetic offer is, comes. In other words, a new fad comes, a new prophetic fad, and everybody's like, oh, let's follow it. And Paul is saying, I taught you already. Don't be deceived. Don't think because the newest fad and someone says, I had a revelation, I had a word that we go running after it. And then we come to this next phrase here. He says, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now you'll notice in your translation, the words, it will not come, are italicized. They're italicized because they're not in the original Greek. Those have been added by the translators in order to, to make the sentence make sense, in order to fill in what is missing. In other words, there is what we call a missing clause in this sentence. Because he has started, remember he ended verse 2 with, Disturbed by a message or a letter, as from us, to the effect, what? That the day of the Lord has come. And then he interjects this statement, let no one in any way deceive you. For it, okay? The idea, what is the it referring to? It's talking about what? The day of the Lord. Now remember, what did we say that the word meant at the end of verse 2? The the, the Lord has what? Come. Now we said that was in the perfect tense, which means the emphasis is, is on the state that comes by the action of the verb, simply meaning, okay, that sounds complicated, but wait. Simply saying the emphasis is not on, on the fact that it has come, but that it is here, that it is present, all right? So he's emphasizing the result of the action that it is, the day of the Lord came and it is present right now. 
Now, it's typical for a writer of that time to leave off what we would say the verb for the next verse because he assumes that you're going to read it in from the verses before. This is, this is a typical device that they use. And you will see that most translations say it will not come unless. In other words, they fill in what is necessary for the unless clause, unless the day of the Lord comes first, and, and the, I mean, the apostasies come first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That is basically all of our English versions. King James, Revised, New American Standard, NIV, ASV, ESV, New King James. Only three versions that I can find actually make this out to be a present. Darby renders it, the day of the Lord is present. The day, Weymouth says, the day of the Lord is now here. The New Revised says, the day of the Lord is already here. Second, the legacy standard, and I know some of you eager ones are, are wondering what the le- legacy standard, it says, let no one in any, it says, uh, the, the day of the Lord has come. And so there is the idea of it ha- it, the day of the Lord it has not come is the idea. So what is going on here? If we are to translate, and, nor- and normally as we go through, we would take the verb from verse 2 and insert it into the clause here. Because we have an unle- uh, uh, a unless clause with really no subject and verb. We've got no verb there. We need to find a verb for it. So we need to import the verb from verse 2. Yet consistently, versions say that it is, it will come. It will not come. Now we know from the use of this word, every, almost everywhere else that we use, everywhere else we use it, Romans 8, for I'm not convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor what? Present things, same word, present tense, Paul says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or death or things, what? Present, same word, perfect tense. I think then that is good view of the what? Present distress, 1 Corinthians 7.26. There's a consistent use of this word in the perfect as being present. So why is it then when we come to this text that we put it into a future tense? It's because it's not being influenced by the context. It's being influenced by theology. Your view, and we said this last week, your, at least I think I did. If I didn't, I should have. <laughs> your view of the day of the Lord will heavily influence what you see verse 3 to be. If you see the day of the Lord as the second half of the tribulation, then then you're going to be influenced that these things must come first because there are events that seem to be described for the middle of the tribulation. 
If you're a post-tribulationalist, then you're thinking that all of this happens at the end of the tribulation and these things must happen before Christ's return. And so you're going to have different points of view based upon your understanding of when, what the day of the Lord is, when it starts, and what needs to take place. But I would suggest to you that if we were just sticking in this text, the immediate word that we would use in this context is the word from verse 2, and we would read this text Rather, the day of the Lord is not present, I lost my place, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so Paul is saying that the day of the Lord, or he's saying, he's saying this, that the day of the Lord is not present. He's not saying that it will, it cannot come, it will not come. He is saying it is not present unless. It is not present unless. The issue involved is this correction of false information to which the leaders have the, the readers have been exposed is not the future coming of the day of the Lord. It is rather the concurrent non-presence of that day at the time he writes. And they read his words. If that day were not present, then they could not be in the day of the Lord. And so he is saying this. The idea is this. The day of the Lord is present, and ultimately we will see, when you see these two events. In other words, when fall comes, we say it's fall because what? It turns cold and the leaves start to fall. Those are not precursors to the day of the Lord. Those are events that take, take place within the day, within fall, sorry, right? So we don't say, the leaves have to fall and it has to get cold, then it's fall. We say, actually, we know it's fall because these things are taking place. And so they are part of that season. And so he is saying, here's what's taking place. The day of the Lord is what? Not present unless two things are taking place. So we would read, I would understand, and, and I'm going to read this for you. This is what he is saying. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is now present. Right? They think they're in the day of the Lord. Let no one in any way deceive you, for that day is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So he's not saying it will not come. He's saying it is not present. It is not present. 
Well, we have a, another exegetical problem that we want to look at, and is that is that word first, the word first, proton. The day of the, in the preferred translation, the day of the Lord is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Two meanings are possible. It can mean that both the coming of the, the, coming of the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness precede the day of the Lord. Or it can mean that both the coming of the apostasy and the revelation of the man of, lawless, of, of lawlessness are, or it can mean, sorry, the coming of the apostasy precedes only the revelation of the man of lawlessness and not the day of the Lord. So there's two exegetical meanings that we can take. Now, we, I think we've established that if we are taking the verb from verse 2, that it, we would have to say that if we're being honest, we would have to say, that the day for it is not present, we've got that, unless. So now we have to decide, is the first referring to the day of the Lord, or is it referring to the revelation of the man of lawlessness? A close grammatical parallel is in second, to 2 second Thessalonians 3 is John 7.51. John 7.51. And what we're going to see that it is identical in structure. Now, today is going to be a bit of a grammar lesson, and it's probably not what we woke up dreaming of this morning. But I think it's important for us if we're going to get this right. And what you're going to see that it is identical in structure to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's a present tense verb in the clause, just like we had. It is not present. And it has an unless clause with a compound subject, right? We have the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. And it also has the word first in the first compound subject. In other words, the, the apostasy comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So, or man of lawlessness. So we have, we have an identical kind of structure taking place in John 7, 51. He says, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now notice this. The judicial process is not carried out, is not carried out without two parts. Hearing the defendant first and gaining knowledge of what he is doing. Clearly, the instance of hearing from the defendant does not precede the judicial process. It is part of it. But it does precede the hearing, the, the knowledge of what the man does. In other words, hearing the defendant comes before the knowledge of what he does. You can't know what he does unless you hear from him. And so you have an identical structure. The word first indicates that the first half of the compound unless clause is prior to the last half. In the judicial process then, the judge must first hear what a man has to say, and then they can know what he is doing. 
And this is the same structure that we find here in Thessalonians. We have, we have again, an identical type of phrase where he again says, and if we plug in the, our verb, or, or we could actually take the last sentence, for the day of the Lord is not present unless, what? The apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. In other words, the first, the first compound subject or the first phrase is coming before, what? The second phrase. All right? So... The first is not referring to the day of the Lord, but referring to the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now, I hope you're following me because I, I get excited and I, I, I might be skipping steps here. But the idea is simply this, then, that this is, this is he is saying then, not that the day of the Lord, it must be preceded by these things, but these events take place within the day of the Lord. They are events that are taking place. We have another, another passage of Scripture that does, gives us a, the same example. Mark 3.27 says, No one can enter a strong house and plunder his property unless he first bind the strong man and then he will plunder his house. The word first in this does not refer to what precedes the unless clause, as it meant that the one must bind the strong man before he enters into his house. Instead, the word first shows the priority of what follows. A person enters the strong man's house, he must bind the strong man, and then the strong man's house is plundered. Again, the word first applies to what follows, as is evident in the word then in the final clause. Then the strong man house is plundered. In other words, he must be bound, then you can plunder. And so as we apply that principle here, let me read a translation of this that I think is accurately reflecting of what he is saying here. The day of the Lord is not present unless first in sequence within the day of the apostasy comes and following the apostasy beginning, the revealing of the man of lawlessness occurs, the lawlessness occurs. In other words, these are events that will now take place within the day of the Lord. The apostasy will come first and then the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Rather than two events preceding the day of the Lord has often been suggested, these are happening that comprise stages of the day after it has begun. In other words, these are things that are taking place within the day of the Lord. By observing the non-occurrence of these, the Thessalonian readers could rest assured that the day whose leading events will be characterized by these events was not yet present. Assigning this meaning to 2 Thessalonians 2.3 frees Paul's from the accusation of contradicting himself. Remember, back in 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he wrote that the day of the Lord would come like what? A thief, right? Thieves do not announce themselves. They don't say, hey, I'm going to be there Thursday at 9 o'clock. Could you not be home? At least not smart thieves, right? (laughs) We won't put it past all thieves, but most thieves, right? And Paul has already said that, what, there is no markers for the day of the Lord. In other words, it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come unexpectedly. And therefore, if he now says there are actually two events that must take, bef- take, take place that you can see beforehand, then he's contradicting what he said before. Because we can certainly look at those events and see if they have taken place and know that the day of the Lord is coming. And so he clings to the eminence of the wrathful phase of the day of the Lord. And again, he says in verse 3, The day of the Lord is not present unless first in sequence within the apostasy comes, and following the apostasy beginning come the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And it's clear that Paul again is, is giving evidence here for dual eminency that existed in Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching that the day of the Lord and the rapture would take place together. That there would not be a gap, that they, there would not, one would not precede the other because if one preceded the other, then eminency would be taken away. So they must coincide with each other. So we've done a little, bit, a little bit of grammar work here this morning. And, and I, 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 I trust that we went slow enough. Probably I, I got too excited and I went too fast. But I, I, think it's, I think it's a proper understanding and context of what Paul is doing here. He is not saying that these events precede the day of the Lord. He is simply saying the day of the Lord is present when you see these things. You look up, just like in fall, and it's cold and leaves are falling. Same too, you're in the day of the Lord. You see the apostasy, and you see the man of sin revealed. Guess what? You're in the day of the Lord. And so he is proving to them, look, look around. Do you see these things? These things that are big events in the day of the Lord? No. Therefore, Thessalonians, you're not in the day of the Lord. You don't need to fear. Calm down. Get your mind back. Come back to what? I have taught you, which he basically says in verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was, what, telling you these things. So the question then becomes, these two events that are taking place during the day of the Lord, what are they? What, are, what, what does it look like? What, what, what does he mean by the fact that the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. What, what, is, what is he talking about? Well, apostasy here points to a deliberate abandonment of a former position or view, a defection, a rejection of a former allegiance. Now, this word was used in classical Greek to speak of political or military rebellion. Its use in the Septuagint was used for rebellion against God. 
And in the New Testament, it was used with a religious connotation. In Acts 20, 21, Luke writes, And they had been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to what? Forsake Moses. And there's that word to apostatize, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to their customs. And so there was a religious a connotation to this word to move away from what is right and true. Now, there have been many attempts to identify what this apostasy is, especially with the past and present movements, but they are futile because the context is associated with the Lord's Jesus' second coming. Now this, the history of the Christian church has been replete with periods where the church has gone away from the truth, where they have apostatized for the truth of the gospel. But that is not what's being talked about because this, this here again has the idea of the apostasy. There is an apostasy that's coming that can be identifiable. It has been spoken of in scripture the defecting of, of Christians in the, in, uh, or those who at least take the name of Christ is anticipated in Scripture. If we look at Matthew 24, again, Jesus is speaking here on this, and he says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now Jesus here is again speaking of future events. He's not speaking about what's taking part in the church age. He is speaking about what is to come during the tribulational period. And so he says, this is what's going to take place. There's going to be an apostasies. Prophets will come. They will mislead many. Now, we certainly see the fingers of this today. It's not like we're going to get into the, to the, to the tribulational period and all of a sudden, bang, everything's going to go wild and there's going to be no precursors because we would understand you don't get from point A to point B without walking across that, that road. So we certainly see evidence of that deception and that apostatizing now but this will be a time where it will be identifiable it's called the apostasy there will be a, a taking away there will be a time in the last days there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts and we know that the church was said that it would be snatched away in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air all that are his are truly gone and now the conditions are ripe for people especially who call themselves Christians but are really not believers to turn their backs on what they what they knew of God or know about God and they demonstrate that they really did not know him one writer says, the falling away indicates a tragic movement within the sphere of professed Christendom, the treason of the avowed friends of Christ. And now they demonstrate outwardly who they are inwardly. And there's this, this worldwide anti-God movement will be so universal that it has earned the special designation, the apostasy. 
and it will climax, we would say, the increasing apostate tendencies evident before the rapture. We know that the world is getting worse now, but there will be a great turning from God. And so he says, the day of the Lord is first going to be characterized by a a great apostasy, a turning away from God, a turning to other idols, turning to other gods, to great deception. And he says, this will mark the beginning of that day of the Lord as people without the influence of the church will now start to what? Apostatize and go to the untruth of the devil. Well, following in in conjunction with the apostasy will come the availing of a mighty figure in history. Now, you'll notice there's some descriptions here. It's not his name. He's not the man of lawlessness. That's a description of him. There's descriptions of who this person is. His whereabouts before his unveiling are not given. He will be alive for years before his unveiling, but his dramatic public presentation will occur after the rebellion begins. In other words, after the apostasy and the rebellion against God, along will come this man, and he will be revealed in a public way. Now again, I would just say this. It says the man of lawlessness. He's speaking of a man. I think the plain sense of the text says he's what? A man. He's not speaking about some some political or philosophical or religious movement. He's talking about what? A man. A man. And Paul characterizes him in three ways. He's called the man of lawlessness. He is is one who is against the laws of God. He will be completely lawless. Some of your translations say the man of sin, which means ultimately he will be a man who does not keep the law of God. Therefore, he will what? He will be full of sin. I think lawlessness is is the best translation here. He's a man who is completely against all that God has set out. As one writer says, Satan so indwells and operates through him that his administration's delights will be in his delight will be in breaking God's righteous law that will be what he will want to do that that will be his delight he's a man of lawlessness because he breaks everything that God has laid out to be good and right and true second he's called the son of destruction literally the son of perdition It's a Hebrew idiom, son of, indicates character or destiny of of a person. In other words, this man is destined for what? Destruction. That's how he's described. He's a son of destruction. He belongs to a class that is set apart for destruction. This is similar to the words that were used for, for Judas. He's another member of this class. He's not this guy, but... He is a member of that same class that have been set out for destruction. So completely has he, has he fallen under the power of destruction that he may rightly be said to belong to it by nature. And so destruction here means 
loss of not a loss of well-being, not loss of extinction. In other words, a loss of of goodness, loss of good life. It's the opposite of all that is implied in salvation. It points to an everlasting state of torment and death. So it's not that he's destruct, going to be destroyed in the fact that he will cease to exist, but he will be under the wrath of God existing forever. It is a destruction that consists of loss of eternal life, eternal misery, the lot of all those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. Third, this individual is described as who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he makes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. His direct and determined opposition to the true God will lead this figure into, will be a leading feature of this apostasy. He opposes, characterizes him as an adversary of Christ. He keeps up his opposition and all that is to all that is called God or worshipped. He embodies not only merely an anti-Christian, but an anti-God revolt. In other words, he's putting himself over all gods. He will seek to abolish existing forms of, of worship and replace them. Every so-called God will be disposed in favor of himself. He exalts himself by lifting himself above all of them. He will lift himself and he will even claim to be the true God and he will put himself in place of the true God as well as the heathen deities. In fact, if we look at Daniel 11.36, it speaks to this. The king, speaking here of the Antichrist, will be, do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous thing against the God of gods. And he will prosper under the indignation is, until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will set himself up above to be worshipped. In addition, he is the object of reverence. It expands the scope here. He will be the object or object of worship, anything that can be worshipped, anything that's conceivable, connected with man's religious activity will fall under this ban of the Antichrist. They must worship him and him alone. Nothing will be left undisturbed. Then he says, so he takes his seat in the temple of God. Again, this brings this self-destruction into an awful climax. Literally, within the sanctuary of God, he will take his seat. The idea is he's, there's a definite, he takes his seat. There's a definite act of taking his seat in the temple of God, in the inner sanctuary of the temple. The word here, there are two words for temple. One speaks of the temple as a whole. This speaks here of, of the intimate inner place. And he will set himself up in the, inter, in the inner place in the temple. He will set himself up in the holy of holies 
in the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 speaks to this. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, speaking of the Israelites, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Israel is being punished for their sin. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with the plaza and the moat, seven even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who are to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with the flood. Even the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So the Messiah was, was prophesied to come after the 69th week. The Messiah would come. And if we do the math, that means when Christ came in on the donkey, as he came into Jerusalem, was exactly the 69 weeks. And then it says here, And he will make a firm covenant, speaking of the Antichrist, with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offerings. And on the wings of abomination will come one who is desolate, even until a complete destruction. One is decreed and is poured out. One who makes desolate. Daniel 12:11 says, From the time that from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. The Antichrist is coming. He will display himself as God. He will set himself up, as it were, in the temple in Jerusalem. He will take his seat there and he will be worshipped and demand worship as God. Then it says displaying himself as being God. This is the implication of his action. He not only takes possession of the temple, but now he publicly displays himself. He displays himself as God, as being very deity. This, is, this, marks, this present tense marks the display of, this is, who he, this is what he does. This is what he constantly does. This is the course of action that he, set, that he sets out on. He makes himself the object of display and says, I am God. I am the exclusive deity. There's no God but me. One writer says, this is the climax of human sin. It is self-assertion in its falsest, most impious and defiant way. So it is marked by the removal of symbolic articles from the Jerusalem temple. The man of lawlessness will occupy the holy precincts in order to accept and demand worship that is due God alone. 
And he says, you'll know you're in the day of the Lord when you start to see this, right? You see the apostasy, you see the people moving away in a way that's unprecedented in world history. And then all, this man will be revealed. Again, this, is spoke, this event is spoken of in Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. In other words, there's more judgment coming. God is going to pour out his wrath even greater. This will take place then, as we saw between Daniel and here, near the midpoint of the tribulational period where this where the Antichrist will set himself up. He will break the treaty with Israel, that covenant halfway through the one week, that firm covenant he made for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. He will break that covenant. He will set himself up with as God in the temple. And so this will mark really the, the highlight of the lawless one's career as he sets himself up to be God, to be worshipped. And again, there's no reason not to take this as a real temple. There's no reason not to take this as a real man. The rest of Scripture points to a time where there will be a real temple. The Scripture points to a time where there will be a real man that comes. Some have said, well, you know what, this, this, this can't be a historical per person because it's, it's mythically orientated like many of the Jewish writings and therefore it must be. But as you look at their writings and you look at this, there's so much difference that it's, it, it, would be, it reveals more differences than similarities. And so this confirms that there is a real man coming to sit and he will overthrow the worship that is going on in the temple. It's not Nero. It's not Antiochus, Antiochus' epiphanies, uh, epiphanies. Wow. Maybe I should take a drink. <laughs> My tongue's a bit dry. There may have been people like this in history, but this is not the man. This man of lawlessness will be a new historical figure figure who is energized by Satan to do his will in the world. As a, a man of God in the Old Testament, regularly, as they regularly designated a divine, the divine, uh, divine prophet, the present man of lawlessness designates a false prophet, probably to be identified with the second beast in Revelation 13. His primary function will be to preside over the religious apostasy and cooperation with the beast of the sea who leads political opposition to God. As God's chief opponent in Jerusalem, whose background is probably Jewish, the lawless son will give religious leadership to complement the dominance of his associated over governments of the world and nations. And this will not escape international observation.
And the fact that there is non-presence of these things, and the fact that these things are visible, proves Paul's thesis that the day of the Lord has not arrived. It is not present. None of these things have taken place, Thessalonians. You're not in the day of the Lord. And so we too can look at this and say, are we in the day of the Lord? Things look bad. Things, things are getting, the judgment is coming, persecution is coming. Are we in the day of the Lord? Well, we know the day of the Lord isn't present. Why? We don't see these things. We don't see these things. And so we too can take comfort that we are not in the day of the Lord. Paul ends this and with this Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? (laughs) And Paul just kind of pulls up from what he's been talking about and 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 he kind of gives them a reminder that what he's teaching here is nothing new. I've already taught you this. And it implies a yes answer. Do you not remember? Yes, you should remember. Right? You guys got, you got a letter and you, you just ran away from what I taught you. But you should remember, I taught you this. Bit of a mild rebuke. How could you be so easily deceived? How could you so quickly move away? He says, I told you. In fact, the idea here is, I told you on several occasions. I told you many things, and I told you over and over. I gave you the truths of what would come. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul is dealing with a very young church. This is written several months maybe six months at most, after 1 Thessalonians. The church is only months old when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. And he's already taught them about eschatology. Paul thought that they were mature enough and thought that it was important enough to teach them. He didn't hide. He didn't say it was controversial. He said, didn't say it was unimportant to your life. He taught them that. And here it's very, very practical. These people are upset. These people think that they have missed the rapture, that they're in the day of the Lord and under judgment. And guess what? Paul says, no, you're not. There's practical, real-life, changing teaching in eschatology. And at Bowmanville, we won't avoid it. At Bowmanville, we won't avoid it because... The Bible teaches it. We must go where the Bible goes. We will teach the full counsel of God. Now we know that not everybody's going to agree in all of the details, and that's fine. But we must recognize that Paul is giving this again to demonstrate to to comfort these people. He he's got a shepherding heart. And he wants them to know the details and he wants them to know some of these things so that they can live productive Christian lives. So as we study these passages and we study these events that are laid out for us, we must recognize that they are here for our comfort, for our good. 
And so we, we teach them because the Bible teaches them and we want the full counsel of God. It's the first time where Paul says, I was telling you. He is, call, he is pointedly saying, this is what I personally taught you. You should know this. Don't be fooled. I, I taught you this. I'm writing this to you. You can take it to the bank. It's true. And so this morning, again, as we look at this, we can take courage. We can take courage again that Paul didn't change his mind from 1 Thessalonians and say, hey, actually, I think you're going to go through the day of the Lord now. I think you're going to go through the wrath of God. Paul actually says, hold up. Don't be discouraged. Don't be upset. Don't lose your mind because you're going through some persecution. You won't go through the day of the Lord. I have what? I've set you apart for what? Salvation. So we too can rejoice that we are not under God's wrath in the day of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us and we thank you for giving us a glimpse of what is to come. And I praise and thank you that your word tells us clearly that we will not go in the day of the Lord. We will not be under your wrath. We will not be under judgment. And so we praise and thank you that we do not need to fear. We praise and thank you that we know that we are destined for salvation and deliverance. And so we want to give you all honor and glory and praise. And I pray that you would help us to live lives in view of that time where we will see our Savior face to face, I pray in your name. Amen.